You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 8. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dylan Brown. Dylan, how's it going today? Fantastic. A little bit chilly, but overall good. How's it going for you? Oh, uh, good. Good. Yeah, a little bit chilly in your neck of the woods. What is that? Negative eight degrees? Or <laughs> It's not so bad today. And guys, whoever's listening to this, this is not going to be a running theme. We're not going to joke about how cold it is where I live every single episode, but it'll come up, <laughs> it'll come up more often than not, I'd say. So it's like small talk, right? Like, how's the weather? <laughs> Yeah, except it's like, are you surviving the weather? That's how it is every time. It's like you look outside and you're like, you see the neighbor's lights on. Like, oh, great. Their power is still on. They haven't died from hypothermia. That's about what it's like (laughs) living in Minneapolis and Minnesota. You know, the the Chiefs game over the weekend was negative 25 degrees, I think. The Chiefs coach had icicles on his mustache. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, we love that. I had that this morning. I don't have much of a mustache, but that's how it is. So, you know. You put a scarf around your face and you breathe through it. And you know this, you live in the cold, yeah. maybe not this cold, but you know how it is. So, it, you know, it gets a little bit frozen up in there. Yeah. Well, I made some killer pizzas this week and I, I home make my pizzas. They are Neapolitan pizzas. So coming out of Italy, I guess, is the origin of them. But I, I have an uni pizza oven. It's a 12 inch pizza oven. And uh, it, it's wood fire, not gas, because, I'm, you know, I... <laughs> It's better if it's wood fire. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I posted some pictures of it on Twitter. If you don't follow me on Twitter, check me out. I'm at B Hall CPA. But I post pictures of of the pizzas that I make every once in a while. Got a, got a good reception. A lot of people asking what my delivery radius was. Dave, actually, who's one of our podcast guests recently, asked that. So I appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of Dave, you guys both were talking about how I have to get on Twitter. I did make yeah. a Twitter account. Per your guys' direction, I'm go- and, and per your advice, Brandon, I'm not going to make any posts for four weeks. I'm going to be a stalker so I can learn how Twitter works before I embarrass myself. <laughs> I think that's smart. <laughs> Twitter is kind of just a, a different world, man. I think that Twitter is one of the most, if not more, more if not most, sophisticated social media platforms. I, I think the people on Twitter, you know, are having sophisticated conversations versus just you know consuming. TikTok video after TikTok video. But yeah, there's definitely a certain way to write and interact on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah just, and let's just, uh, watch it for a little bit. <laughs> exactly. And you you reminded me on more than one occasion that yes, Twitter is in fact a cesspool. And you have to keep that in mind no <laughs> matter what. Be, it can be. <laughs> okay, there's a lot of really great people on Twitter. But man, anytime, anytime you post something great, you get all the sophisticated, awesome people like chiming in great conversations and then you can just really make some groups mad and they just come out in full form so uh so yeah so just be careful with that but let's talk about today's episode so today we interviewed mandy McAllister. uh she is the ceo of one side of go abundance and she invests in real estate and more recently car washes so we we talked with her about the various things that she's been doing. She, she has an interesting approach. She's never like raised capital at scale. She doesn't like the syndication type model. So she's kept things really close to the chest and has been able to scale a sizable portfolio. 
But interestingly, and you'll hear probably about half the episode is kind of focused on her car wash that she recently acquired, which seems to be a, I might not say it correctly here, so I don't mean to minimize it by any means, but a minimal part of her overall portfolio is the way that I'll phrase it. So it it was a $500,000, I think, acquisition, which is small compared to her entire portfolio, but she's really enjoying learning how to run a car wash. And her plans now are to scale out a car wash business, which is interesting. So I found the conversation really fascinating that you've got a real estate investor who has a sizable portfolio and has bought one small car wash and decided that that's the move going forward. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we explore that in detail. Absolutely. Yeah. And in her point of view, you know, maybe $500,000 investment of, you know, if you're not taking a syndicator route, that is more than just, you know, I'm just going to throw a little bit of money on it and try it. You know, that's a sizable investment, right? Uh, We talk about it in the episode. But first, before we dive into that portion of the episode, let's just circle around to our CPA Insights segment, the part where we just talk about what we're seeing in the market and any of the new rules that we're seeing, especially as it relates to the IRS. And oh boy, have we seen a lot of talks, but not very much action on what we're talking about today, which is the extension of certain TCJA tax laws that were set to phase out gradually. And so for our listeners, the big one that you're probably thinking about, if you're not already, it's going to be bonus depreciation. But there's also all sorts of other stuff that's been included in the talks on Capitol Hill as it relates to potentially extending these things. So the one portion of this that they for sure on both sides of the aisle are rumored to be including are going to be the child tax credit. They're looking at expanding the child tax credit and you know that's really receiving bipartisan support. I'll add though, none of this is based off of any official text that has been released. This is all just based off of rumors that we're hearing from Capitol Hill, various news outlets that are on the ground listening in, kind of watching the trends and talking to congressmen and women. But the other big ones are going to be, obviously, returning to 100% bonus depreciation is definitely on the table still. It's in discussion, which really what that means, if it's a two-year extension to the year 2025, that means rather than seeing the phase out to 80% and 60% for 2024 that we saw in 2023 and 2024, respectively, or so we had planned for, it would actually push out that phase out to 2025 and 2026, respectively, meaning that for 2023 and 2024, we'd actually still be back to 100% bonus depreciation, which would be a huge change versus what everybody was talking about previously. Yeah. And the other major thing to focus on here is that the R&D expensing, I know that, that especially if you do get on Twitter, Dylan, and you start getting to the right, the right circles, Uh, I'm in circles with a lot of technology folks, and they have been really loudly complaining that the R&D expensing went away. I mean, it's a huge cost. If you can't write off the costs and you have to now like amortize over some long period of time, it really puts you in a bad position because you have effectively cash flow that is different from net profit. Net profit's going to be a lot higher than your cash flow is actually going to be for tax purposes, meaning that you pay a much larger tax bill than the cash flow that you've received. So that's not good. Right. So R&D expensing is apparently in this bill as well. And I believe that that is also supposed to be retroactive. So we'll kind of see what happens here over the next two weeks. Absolutely. The only thing that's really clear at this point is where they would get the money. I and mean, nobody's really disputing the fact that the intention is to fund this with ERC credit audits. Like basically all those ERC credits that maybe were fraudulently filed, it would be recouping the funds from that. All right. So with that, we're going to keep listeners updated as we hear more. Right now, it's still in limbo, as we said. 
but it's still very exciting to watch and we know it'll be making headlines as soon as we do hear more on a, an official release. So with that, let's get right into today's episode. Mandy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you. Why don't you start by giving us a high-level overview of your journey and where you're at today? Sure. I uh, first got interested in real estate investing in college in 1999 and really did nothing about it until 2015. I bought a fourplex in a college town. And when I finally you know, took the leap and didn't die from it and actually had $1,000 cash flow coming out of that acquisition, I, I wanted to you know, do as many of those types of deals as I possibly could. So then I did a six and a 10 and you know, jumped into bigger stuff from there. And a couple of years later, 2021, I uh, was able to leverage that cash flow to be able to leave my W-2, which was uh, medical device sales. And what are you doing today? So having bought my way out of my W-2, I had a lot of extra space. And I joined this group called uh, GoBundance. Uh, they started a women's division. And I joined as a member because I wanted to be next to people who were doing bigger things than me. And I wanted to, a chance to you know, have conversations with people who had left W-2s. That was something that was really appealing to me. But all the people in my like, quote unquote, normal life, they know the W-2 path. Like they, they did the same things that I was on the path of doing. And the idea of I was in uh, 2021, I was a single mom, right? And they, they thought, oh my gosh, leaving a multiple hundred thousands of dollars a year job to go do this real estate investing thing, that is incredibly irresponsible. Think of your kid. But the people in this group, they were able to tell me, you know, when I left my W-2, I realized I was leaving a lot of money on the table because I was spending so much time working for someone else rather than building my own dream. So because I bought my way out, I had a lot of space and was able to take over leadership, uh, CEO position of GoBundance Women. Interesting. So describe GoBundance. What exactly is that? Is that like a group of entrepreneurs that buy real estate or just a group of entrepreneurs? You know, we are largely real estate investors. If you believe the moniker that 90% of all millionaires are that way because of real estate, then you would anticipate that the tribe of millionaires, as we refer to ourselves sometimes, that 90% of us would have gotten there with real estate. And we did. So most of us are real estate heavy, but most of us are uh, entrepreneurs. And how many women are in the group? 130-ish. We're growing and excited to leverage our collective genius further. That's impressive. What, what's like the average member profile? What, what does that look like? You know, the thing that matters most to us, you know, I get asked a lot, like, what's what's the we, we take applications, right? We don't just take anybody. What is the person that you take? And that person, it's not like an age. It's not like an, a specific occupation. It's a committed to growth thing, right? Like last year, we took a 19 year old, we took a 66 year old. The thing that they had each at the forefront was that they wanted to grow in every way in their life, including their money, but also their connected relationships in their health, in their charitable giving in every single way in life. Is everybody like helping the 19 year old? <laughs> she is the best. I just remember that being a superpower when I, <laughs> when I was in college. Oh my gosh. I mopped up the floor networking. Cause like everybody wants to help the kid. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all see ourselves in her shoes and we all right. wish that we would For have her. had thoughts to, you know, convert a million dollar building when we were 19. But she, she's killing it. I'm, I'm really proud that she chose conversations like the ones that we have in GoFundance. And brilliant move on her part really early in life, I think. Tell us about your real estate portfolio. What does that look like? Sure. I, I, I'm a small multis investor. What that really means, it's uh, I like a fourplex up to about a 50-ish unit. Growing up in multifamily, I started with that four unit and I wanted to add a zero. And I, I joined a multifamily group 
and everybody starts talking about syndication right off the bat, right? If you're a multifamily, they want you to be a syndicator. That's what all the coaches, gurus, that's what they all preach. And it didn't make a ton of sense to me because if I'm gonna be doing all this work, why am I gonna sell off 70 or 80% of it to, to passive investors? I want—I call myself an equity hog. I wanna keep as much of that deal as humanly possible. So I take down deals by myself or with as few partners as possible to buy and hold for the longer term. I specifically like a 50-ish unit building with uh, agency debt on it, specifically Fannie Mae debt, because I, I can put another loan product in the future that's not afforded to Freddie Mac loan products. So 50-ish units, Fannie Mae loans. Do you mean indefinite? Or are you, what's your term that you're looking to target for a hold period? I call my strategy buy and watch. <laughs> like I, I buy it with the express purpose to hold for a floor of income that I can live off of. Because I think that if you're operating from a place of all of my needs are met, then you're doing deals you want to do. You're not doing a deal because you have to do a deal. That is the space I like to operate from. So if you wanted to offer me $20 million for the thing I paid $16 million for last year, neat, I would consider selling to you. I buy and I watch the market, but we put really long-term loans on it. The, the last loan we did was a 12-year Fannie Mae product. How many units do you have today? All in varying ownership amounts, mind you, 373 units. That's a sizable portfolio. Good job. So let's talk about the syndicator piece a little bit because I find that interesting. I think that most people look at that as you go out and you raise money, then you can buy larger assets, you can gain economies of scale faster. You might have a smaller percentage of the overall pie, but the overall pie is so much larger that you benefit more economically if you go that route. I mean, you clearly thought through it. So, so give us your thinking as to why you didn't want to go that route, why you wanted to keep it all be an equity hog yeah. uh, to use your words. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So I, I feel like in these larger transactions, somebody has the deals and willingness to do the work and somebody has the money. If you can be the person to have both, then you are in this really unique position that you get to choose whatever happens. So I've been on GPs for uh, syndications and I you know, raised a million dollars and I did all the same due diligence and all the same work and I, I'm as involved as I am on the stuff I own all by myself or with few partners. And I own 5% of that GP. So 5% of 30% guys is 1.8%. And sure, 104 units, of my 373 whatever is is that building but 1.8% of 104 units is a friggin duplex bro you know so let's understand which one i'm more impressed with the you know 38 units that i own like 30% of or that that i own 1.8% of you know yes i totally hear you and i guess what i'm wondering is in theory mm -hmm. would that not be a starting point to, so that you could step up into taking the entire 30% stake, right? Do you feel like going this other route? Do you feel like you've missed on opportunities? Do you feel like it, because everybody else goes the syndication route. So this yeah. is like unique, right? So I'm trying to like, I'm trying it. to like dig into this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to ask the question, but yeah, like, like what sort of, what sort of opportunities do you feel like you maybe missed and why not like step up and take that entire 30%? So the, the primary reason is I was leaving a medical device job where I, I didn't go to medical school because I didn't want to be on call answerable to you know patients, right? And then I end up in medical device sales on call 
for patients, right? So I wanted to leave a W-2 with express purpose of not being answerable to anyone. If I chose the route of syndicator, I trade one master for another master. That is not what I wanted. And sure, I'm constraining my growth by not taking other people's money in the beginning. But the way that I chose to look at it is I want a floor of income first. If I'm going to do a syndication, there's also pressure to flip it. To, you're, you're really kind of a glorified flipper. You increase that NOI and you sell it in a couple of years. I don't want to have to be schlepping to go find a new deal to have to do every year. You know, I talked to a guy when I was growing up in multifamily. He went the syndication route. I was going this equity hog route. And I asked him, well, how do you know when you're going to be able to leave your W-2? He was also in medical device. And uh, he's like, oh, well, all I got to do is this deal and that deal. And then I get this acquisition fee and that disposition fee. And then all I got to do is four deals a year. And I'm like, oh my God, what if you don't find four deals that are worth doing? What if interest rates spike in some ridiculous way? Are you going to sell crappy deals because you have to feed your kid? I don't ever want to be in that position. So I chose first to find a floor of income so that now I can go do whatever I damn well please. And at this point of scale, I presume that it's, it's a little slower to start versus just going straight to mm -hmm. the syndication game. But once you get the scale underneath you, I imagine that it's, it's relatively easy to then bolt on the next deal and the next deal. Can you talk to us a little bit about how maybe your growth has evolved in terms of the portfolio, like, like, like how it's become maybe easier or harder to find the next deal and bolt it on? Yeah, I did do some leveraging of equity in other deals early on when I was doing just my own deals, but I've set things up. I've, I've asked the teams that I'm on, the, the partners that I have, that we do Fannie Mae loans so that we could, if we choose, put on a supplemental loan to pull out a big chunk of that equity now that we have it. Now it's just kind of a piggy bank sitting there for us if we ever want it, you know? But the way I look at things now is my end game is now and forever small multis on this non-recourse agency debt. That is my end game forever. However, if I'm going to be the guy who brings both the money and does the work, I got to come up with like this engine for cash flow. And yes, syndicating, bringing in those acquisition fees could be an engine for cash flow. But the path I've chosen to go is how can I look for greater cash flow in the stuff I've already got? Some of the smaller deals, the six flex I've got, I converted that to midterm rentals because it's right next to a hospital. That really juiced the cash flow on that, that I can put in my piggy bank to go buy something else new. But that really kind of fueled the acquisition of business stuff, real estate heavy business stuff that was kind of all the rage in GoBundance Women, especially because if you're going to buy something at a four cap in multifamily, you get crowded out pretty quick. But if you're going to look at, let's say, a car wash at a 3x multiple of EBITDA, it gets a lot easier to make the cash flow work. That's awesome. I was just going to say that's a perfect segue because what you're talking about is you're talking about rather than focusing on acquiring more businesses and by businesses, I mean property in this context, but really we can look at it from a higher level, acquiring more and more businesses, getting more and more assets under management. Your approach has allowed you to look at operational efficiency and look at peeling back the layers of the businesses that you've acquired and running them really well. So maybe talk to us a little bit about two things. The first being how do you think that this approach has made you better at operating businesses? And then obviously in our prior conversations before we started recording, you talked to me about kind of this trend with other GoBundance members about acquiring businesses and even your own, as you just alluded, the car wash businesses. That's mm -hmm. an example we want to touch on in this recording. So maybe start by talking about how your background in this style of real estate investing has improved your ability 
to operate a business more efficiently and find value in an existing business? And then how has that translated as you started to branch out into actually acquiring operating car washes as our first example of a business you've acquired? I feel like the reason the larger multifamily stuff makes so much sense to me is it's first the debt and then second, the management gets a lot easier. You know, one thing that's a little bit of a hack that I use that I I don't hear a ton of people talking about is, you know, the syndicators always tell you go 100 units or more because then you can hire a full time person. Well, if you buy a 50 ish unit, then you can make sure that, you know, Frank is on site, not Monday through Friday, but maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And one person's set of eyes being on the problem really fixes it. Right. And I I firmly believe and I've had deals fall apart because we, we didn't abide by this like personal rule of mine that you can't manage what you don't measure, right? And if you have criteria, if you have dashboards, if you have one solid look at the things that matter to you in a business, in a building, then it's gonna be really easy to make decisions. It's, it's distilling the data down to something that's actionable that has really translated from buildings to business for me. I like that. That's something as a manager on our team, that's something we wanna focus and learn from. So I'm really glad you're bringing these up. And now talk to us a little bit now you're buying a car wash. That's your strategy right now. You talked to us a little bit about the multiple difference, but it's still a real estate heavy play. But let's talk yeah. about how maybe this is a good bridge into acquiring a business. It's, we can see it as a hybrid asset, if you will, if you want to describe it that way, where we're taking all of our real estate core competencies, but we're also taking a look at the car wash business. So talk to us a little bit yeah. about that business, why you chose it and what attracts you to it. Sure. I, um, I like to make little bets. Previously, I, I bought a motel too, and it was an 18 key motel. And if, if you don't pay a lot for an asset, no matter what the asset is, you can screw it up a hundred ways and you can still do quite well, right? So I like this idea of little bets. This car wash felt kind of like a little bet. It's, it's the self-service spray bay ones. My ultimate goal in acquisition of businesses, one, I wanted something that was real estate heavy because that's the language I speak and I wanted it to rhyme. And and I had 1031 exchange funds that I wanted to be able to use as a down payment. So that was really helpful. But then two, I, I wanted to answer this question. Chat GPT can't replace fill in the blank business, right? Chat GPT can't replace a laundromat. And is it's real estate heavy. ChatGPT can't replace a car wash, and that's real estate heavy. So those two types of acquisitions are what had my attention from the start. How has your team changed? Like buying and managing real estate, I presume is maybe you could talk about that. What does your team look like for your real estate portfolio, and and then how did you tweak it to manage this car wash? So the bulk of my real estate holdings are in Indianapolis. I live in Chicagoland. So they are managed by third-party managers. That hack of get Frank on site Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that works by open communication, setting of expectations from the jump with a third-party property manager so that you can really have those eyes on the prize. That doesn't exist in car washes. I actually, a guy who wrote a book called Buy Then Build, which I consider to be the Bible of all things buying businesses. His name's Walker Diebel. I had a conversation with him and he said, you know, car wash and car washes, something is always broken, right? So a big part of my running of this and setting expectations with the team is we've got five spray bays. If one is down, someone will be able to go in a different operable bay. Let's just make sure that, you know, we are treating things correctly, getting a cone in front of things, making it very clear to them that this is not going to work and then getting help in. We, we use a lot of branded car wash fixer men. There's a, there's a real business in this too, guys, because everybody who fixes a car wash is like 60 or older, right? So if you want to start a business, 
consider fixing things in a car wash because that generation will, will need some help at some point in time. Brandon, I hope you're taking notes. I think that's a good niche we should get into. <laughs> wait, 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 like, like the the uh, the handyman niche yeah. or the uh, the car watch niche? <laughs> no, Brandon, the handyman niche, of course. The I know that's right up your alley. I, I was thinking of you when she said that. Of course, I, that's what Brandon does on the weekends. I'm a terrible handyman. <laughs> I outsource everything. YouTube. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the, the team is uh, a couple, well, my fiance is my business partner on the business side. I acquired the real estate because I had the 1031 exchange funds. He and I acquired together the business piece of the deal. And he's a high school football coach. He knew a junior college coach in the area. So we hired a couple of kids to come by for two hours a day and empty trash cans and alert us to any problems. So we always have eyes on it. Uh, my ultimate goal is to have a couple of these so that I can have a full-time kind of manager handyman be able to bounce between the two or three. But this one cannot afford a full-time person. Interesting. Are you going to continue acquiring car washes? You know, I like to get my legs under me. This seems to make sense. And I like the play a lot. And it helped me with the 1031 exchange tax deferment. Mm. But we're, you know, I, I, it's yet to be proven. I, I like it. I don't know yet. Can we actually kind of like go through the deal a little bit? Yeah, happy to. When did you sell the prior property? Like what was your 1031 exchange timeline? How stressful was that process? I've had failed exchanges before. Here's how I look at an exchange. It's like, you know, when you play blackjack in Vegas and you, the dealer shows an ace and you get to buy the insurance. Yeah. That's what I feel like, you know, filing the 1031 exchange paperwork is that I don't want to stress it. Like if I, you know, if I lost the 800 bucks or a thousand bucks, whatever it is, to have had the insurance, neat, but I'm going to set myself up for that win in case I get it. And it worked out this time. So I, I had my heart set on a laundromat or a car wash, like I mentioned, and I had run down the rabbit hole on a bunch of laundromats, couldn't find anything that worked. And one actually popped up on just biz by sell. And mm. it was in a price range that made sense. It was self-serve. It was, I didn't want to buy the full tunnel where I needed a full staff of people you know, be welcoming in visitors and, and toweling off, right? I wanted it to be very kind of working class self-serve. That's what this was, had the real estate component. So what I did is when we went under contract, it was listed at 500,000. Like I said, a little bit. I divided that up into two transactions. I said, I'll give you 75,000 for the business. I'll give you 400,000 for the building. And we paid cash for the business. I used the 1031 exchange funds for the building and got a loan on the balance. Got it. And why did you divvy up the operating and the real estate? So in order to make the 1031 feel fully clean, it needed to be real estate to real estate, right? So I, if I paid something for the business, then that would you know, at least make me not feel red flagged. <laughs> you're you're the and tax you, experts though. You let me know if that was appropriate. Yeah, it was a good move. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and do you have two separate entities then and like an operating entity and a real estate entity? We do. Yep. Very interesting. And are you leasing... Is the operating entity leasing the real estate? It is. Okay. Yep. Interesting. And, and so you got financing on it. Were you able to finance the, the business side or was, was that cash? So a happy accident here was if you're going to look for an SBA loan, I've run down that rabbit hole with the motel project that I did a couple of years ago. And I found the fees to be really prohibitive. In order to fund a rehab on that motel, I wanted to borrow like 80 grand. So like nothing huge. And I was going to pay like 70,000 in fees. It might've just been that one deal, but that was my experience. And it, it made me feel like I didn't want to run down that rabbit hole. Also, you can only get a 10 year AM on it, right? So a happy accident was having put 
all of my borrowing on the building, working with the local bank that I have done a ton of transactions with, they let me do a 25-year amortization on the 300000 left that we borrowed. Got it. And I see a note in our pre-show notes here that car washes are valued on a 3x EBITDA. So, I mean, is this car wash, like, is the NOI like 100 150k? It's close. So wow. the, the way that that would work, it's it was 117 is what he was able to show me. Um, okay. It's just like mom and pop buildings, right? Like lots of these owners, like this this guy is a very kind man. He's been so helpful to us in the takeover. He's owned it for 18 years, and the bulk of his record keeping it's it's on a pad of paper. And Uh-oh. in order, <laughs> oh no, I'm out. I'm, I'm running for the hills, baby. <laughs> so, in looking at tax returns, in looking at what actually got reported, yeah. uh, it, they showed about 117,000 or so. So, if you're paying a 3x multiple on that, you should pay 300 some thousand for that business. So, paying 75,000 felt like it was more than reasonable for the business. Got business. it. Uh, Mandy, so I- question about that, because that was uh, sorry, Brandon, to cut you off. I'll, I'll get back to what you were just about to say. But I was just about to ask on the on the three X multiple, if you actually were close to that same earnings, but then compare it against your seventy five thousand dollar price paid, your multiple is like less than one. Right. But what does the rent expense do to that? And I guess part of that question is, is the is the rent you're charging from real estate LLC over to the car wash LLC. Is that like fair market? Because I know there's a lot of, I mean, you're on both sides of the transaction. It's not like it's a totally arm's length transaction. I'm just curious about that. You know, uh, the way we have it set up now, it's it's break even for the real estate entity because I know I'm getting the 1031 tax deferment. Mm-hmm. I feel like also the assess the county assessor, the tax assessment had it valued at 570,000, just the building. And I bought that for 400. So it felt like I could break even on that and have cash socked away that when that loan mm-hmm. expires, I only put a three-year term loan on that. So when that expires, then I can look to refi and potentially pull something out. And last question before we circle back to what Brandon was going to say, did you put any additional money in on top of the 1031 exchange money when you acquired the real estate or was it it's just perfect amount in your uh, qualified intermediary? Yeah, it was like eight grand or something. It was, it felt negligible. nice. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Awesome. So I, I was laughing about the patent paper that that's the books and records because I, with my parents, we bought a 20 unit property is it was 10 duplexes. And that owner was also a big paper and pencil guy. And that was like, that was like 18 months of pain to finally get it all figured out. So we're good now, but I told my parents like, I am never buying a pencil paper business again. Anyway. You're um, not wrong. (laughs) You earned that upside for sure. Not to say that everybody's like, can't run it perfectly with pencil and paper, but okay. So a hundred thousand dollar NOI, I'm just gonna call it NOI. I know that we we're using different terms and stuff, but a hundred thousand dollar NOI. In today's world, you probably have to buy, what, $2 million worth of real estate to get that? Well, um, think of how multifamily is valued, right? It's yeah. value equals NOI divided by cap rate. The math, right. zoom out right. math on that is for a dollar of cash flow. If I buy at a four cap, I have to pay $25 for that dollar of cash flow. If I yeah. buy at a five cap, it costs me five bucks or it costs me uh, 20 bucks for that, that dollar of cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm buying the car wash, I only pay $3. For that dollar of cash right. flow. So in this idea of engine for cash flow to dump into this kind of forever, gonna pay me forever, safest, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, long-term investment of apartment buildings on agency debt, that's kind of the approach. 
I guess my question is twofold. Why do you feel like there's such discrepancy in valuation? And two, because like I I kind of view the car wash piece as like, at least from our clients that run car washes, it's it's relatively passive. So to get a 3x valuation just means that you can buy up a lot of cash flow, right? Your your dollar goes a lot further. Mm -hmm. What's your strategy going forward between like balancing the car wash acquisitions or similar valued businesses versus investing in real estate? Why would you continue investing in real estate and not just buy up a bunch of car washes? So I, I think the reason that there's this discrepancy, it's so much cheaper to buy a dollar of cash flow in a business or a, specifically a car wash, because it's not nearly as passive. You know, it's passive-ish, it's passive light, let's say. I'm involved every single day in this. Well, and I was going to ask you, like, what, what are you feeling the real difference is compared to what you've been doing versus what you're doing now with the car wash? My class B <laughs> agency dad humming with somebody on site on a regular basis buildings. I'm on a call for an hour once a month. That period, end of story, right? Those are on 30-year amortized loans for 12 years, most of them in the 3% range that I'll be able to pull out upside whenever we want, right? That is the ultimate rich get richer play, in my opinion. That is my end game forever and feels safest, feels more certain. When it comes to the car wash, you know, once I get a little scale under my belt, I'm sure it will feel more passive when I have a team of people, but you're still relying on people. It's more managing the people than managing just an asset. Is there a strategy for you if maybe you've already thought through this or maybe you haven't? Is there a strategy for you if you were to say, hey, I really like this car wash business and I want a few more? I suppose there would be a strategy to kind of build a portfolio and add more systems than were traditionally mm-hmm. in pace, modernize, bring together resources that were previously scattered and maybe not the most efficient, and then kind of exit at a better multiple, a more attractive multiple. I yeah. mean, I guess that would be the biggest play in my eyes, just from an outside perspective. That's why private equity is so interested in these types of assets, right? So, you know, the kind of high level, just in case listeners aren't familiar with buying business stuff, if you're buying a business who's EBITDA, who is like kind of akin to NOI, so let's consider them the same for the purposes of this conversation, your multiple of EBITDA NOI would be if it's under 5 million of EBITDA, then you're going to have a lower multiple. As soon as you cross like about a $5 million mark of EBITDA, like let's say a three, X multiple goes to a 10X multiple. So you have out of thin air because you have joined businesses together, you have increased that multiple and made money on top of money. So that's the private equity play. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if this is exactly the way it's going to work out. However, in terms of modernization, we already bought the software and the faceplate and the hardware to be able to do membership type sign-ons for people. So that's something that as soon as it's not like negative two in Chicago, we're going to have installed. Awesome. I really like that. Are you planning in 2024 to continue acquiring car washes? Like, Is that kind of your goal is to get to that $5 million EBITDA number? You know, my ultimate reason for setting up my life and my investments the way I have is I can do what seems interesting at the time. I sit and watch. I have my buy box criteria for real estate and I'm developing my buy box criteria for car washes. And if the market is in a place that they line up with my needs as an investor, then I'm going to run at that. Right now, I can't tell you what the market is going to present to me in 24. Sweet. 
Well, I'm really excited to see where this goes because just talking to you, I think there's an opportunity here. I would be remiss though, because we've got two tax CPAs on the line and we're talking about car washes. This is not the first time we've had conversations about car washes. It's actually one of those things that comes up pretty frequently when we're talking about tax advantages, Mm -hmm. right? So you had mentioned that you've done a 1031 exchange into this, which we know that that adds a lot of complexity on the tax benefits from depreciation when you acquire something new. So let's just remove that from the conversation for a second and just talk about buying car washes at its most basic essence, right? You know, we've talked about this a little bit on the air, but I want to dive into it a little bit deeper. But let's just start with this. This business, car wash businesses, is a really depreciation heavy business to be in. Can we start there and just talk to us a little bit about why that is and maybe some of the equipment and the kind of the typical expenditures that you're seeing in this business? Because I think that a lot of listeners might have heard this before and maybe are attracted to the business for those reasons as well. I mean, absolutely. Our reason to acquire this was for a depreciation play, especially with bonus depreciation getting phased down. I, I want to, to take advantage of as much as possible while the getting's good, you know. But there is a ton of equipment. You guys, if you saw the mad scientist, like pumps and levers and loud, I mean, I grew up on a farm. So being around machinery is not weird to me, but it's, this is more akin to being on the farm than it is to, you know, working in these apartment buildings than I've ever been a part of. So that's interesting. You say that it's really cool. I've heard some crazy stuff about the, like, all the things that can go wrong and maybe those stories about the equipment, but just in general, the equipment. What do you think in terms of a percentage of the cost to start a car wash business or buy a car wash business? What percentage of the cost do you think is allocated just to that car wash equipment alone? Well, this was part of the appraisal, actually. But what I'll say is the previous owner, having put in all of this equipment, it was $700,000 or so. I bought it for four seventy-five. So it turns out that whatever version of our pumps are the known workhorses in the the world of car wash, which was, again, just a happy accident. So we intend to just fix those and make them work until the time comes that we need to replace. Sweet. So a lot of our listeners might know this, but if this is new, there is obviously a lot of benefits from buying equipment-heavy businesses, right? Because equipment has certain depreciation benefits that accelerates depreciation a lot faster than a lot of buildings. What a lot of our listeners might not know is that there are specific carve-outs for certain buildings. Hint, hint, car washes is one of them. There's a lot of history behind why that is. But I'm hoping we can kind of talk about that a little bit and I'll kick off that conversation. So just a little bit of background here. Car washes, if you go to Pub 946, anybody who's listening can pull up their Google and go to Pub 946. It's a publication put out by the IRS and it's called How to Depreciate Property. Scroll all the way to the bottom. There's this little thing. It's an asset class, 57.1. And it's going to say distributive trades or services, billboards, service station buildings, and petroleum marketing land improvements. Hidden in that is a little thing that says car washes are depreciable for a 15-year life, as opposed to a 39-year life, which many of our listeners might know. Most real estate that's commercial is 39 years, and most residential is 27 and a half years. And by most, I mean all. That's the rules, typically, right? When you're talking about a specific carve-out for a distributive trader service, these car washes, which they are, the code allows you, or the IRS uh, has a publication and the code allows you to have depreciation over 15 years, which, talking about bonus depreciation, 15-year life 
is bonus eligible. Obviously, we're not sure where that stands. It's still in talks at the congressional level of, as to whether they're going to extend that 100% bonus into the future at the time this is recording. Uh, we're in 2024 now, so that is supposed to have been reduced to 60%. In 2023, it was 80%, but there are talks of extending that. So bonus appreciation, though, 15-year assets, it's eligible. I thought I was going to have to do a cost seg, and now it looks like I don't have to do a cost seg. I mean, you do have, so the benefit of doing a cost seg is still having the assets put into the various buckets, right? But the cost seg no longer is the means to have bonus depreciable assets, right? So that's the benefit versus if you were to just buy an apartment building. If you don't do the cost seg, the default is just 100% to the 27 and a half your property. And then obviously you break out a portion for the land that's non-depreciable. That's the same case in any asset, by the way, you still bought some land, right? That's that portion's always non-depreciable. But in your case, the default is 15 years, which is bonus depreciable. So if you didn't do a cost seg, you would have just a single car wash asset, which is depreciated over 15 years, bonus eligible. Now for any listeners, um, we still do recommend cost segregations so that you can kind of, uh, it's, it's partial asset dispositions, which we've talked about in prior episodes. We won't get too into that, but there is still a benefit of having those assets broken out so that down the road, if you make an improvement on a portion of the building, you might have the ability to write off that portion of the building that was previously capitalized. Now, keep in mind, if it's already been depreciated, there's not too much benefit to that. Um, That's what I was going to say is that the cost seg might be beneficial if you were able to utilize it for partial asset dispositions at some later point. So so like, imagine this, you get a cost seg, it identifies each pump, right? Now you're immediately deducting the cost of that pump because of how car washes are depreciated. At some later point, if you replace the pump, then you get to take the old pump off of your books. Now, most of the time with a partial asset disposition, the benefit of it is that the asset that I'm removing from my books still has basis that has not yet been depreciated. So I get an immediate deduction for the remaining cost since it's no longer, it's no longer there. Mm -hmm. What you might benefit from is when you liquidate this at some future point, you're not paying like double recapture, double depreciation recapture, right? Cause you've removed that asset that no longer exists off your books. So it no longer has a basis of zero. So when you liquidate, you don't have to recapture that asset. Got it. Cool. Thanks guys. There you go. That'll be a thousand dollars. All the more reason to come on a smart guy podcast. Thank you for that. Uh, just kidding. This has been great. Uh, so I want to talk about syndicator math. I, yeah. and I'll let Dylan ask because I know that you guys were like talking about that. So, so let's move into that. Yeah, I was kind of what I was talking about before, you know, growing up in multifamily, I joined a group that there were a ton of syndicators and they would talk about, oh, I have a thousand doors. And I would think, gosh, why can't that guy quit his job if he's got a thousand doors? And then I started to get involved in syndications. And then it's that math of I own 5% of 30%, which is really just 1.8%, which uh, it just makes me giggle sometimes. We've had people fill out our web form. We get a lot of a lot of people contacting us, which is awesome. We're very grateful for. But every once in a while, we'll get one of those folks that's like, all right, we've got, I've got a thousand units under management and we get excited, right? We're like, oh, cool. Like this is, we, we want to work with you. Yeah. You get on the phone and it's like, I raised $50,000 and put it into a deal. It's like, oh man, that's way different. That's yeah. way different than saying I've got a thousand. Yeah. I get it. I get it. My favorite, Brandon, and this is the one that I'm, I always talk about is the assets under management. 
the numbers. If we actually tallied up all the assets under management on every new syndicator's website that's cropped up in the last few years, and we're just to say, what's the total amount of assets under management? We probably have a bigger number than the total value of all the real estate in the world. Because you've got every every co-GP saying they've got the entire portfolio under management, even though <laughs> to, to Mandy's example, they've got 1.8% of the, the overall share. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think that that message is out there enough that if you are, you, you will own, yes, potentially a very, very small piece of a much, much bigger pie, but it's a very, very small piece. So make sure your goals are aligned with your approach. Mm, very good thoughts. Mandy, what do you have your sites focused on over the next 12 to 18 months? What, what, what type of real estate are you looking at? Well, honestly, the thing that fills up my day is working with the women of GoBundance. Uh, making sure that we have the right programming in place, the right support in place. And a lot of us are are looking very business heavy right now because the market doesn't necessarily support lots of, let's say, multifamily acquisition. I am still looking for uh, 50-ish units, B-class, Indianapolis. That is my wheelhouse. That is what I want to continue to take down. Uh, and that's what I continue to underwrite. So that's what I'm hoping becomes available and uh, sellers start to get a little bit more open-minded about cap rates. And we do get these Fed cuts that we've been teased with. And you've got a lot of other people who are in the same boat looking at businesses. We know what you're looking for. We know that your buy box has to do with Class B in Indianapolis. And you're also looking at laundromats and some car washes. Is there other trends in some of the women in GoBundance? Are there other businesses we haven't talked about that are also trending or Maybe speak to that. Yeah, there's been a number of um, like digital marketing and cleaning companies also, because that's just managing people. One of the really interesting cleaning companies that was acquired was she finds contractors that a guy who owns a big street brush that then she goes out and finds the customers and pays him his cut. She's doing that in a lot of different markets, started in LA. Uh, I find that like she took nothing and an idea and made phone calls and it's a business. That type of ingenuity is the type of thing I like to be around. That's super awesome. That's the kind of people that you can just put them in a room full of other like-minded people and you're just gonna get so much invention, so much ingenuity, so many new ideas. Like those are the kind of people you wanna be surrounded with, which obviously is, I understand it to be the point of GoBundance. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, I, I mean, I'm a deeper thinking version of myself because it coming from just multifamily masterminds, you become a hammer who sees a nail and you hang out with hammers who see nails and you don't think about anything differently. So to be next to a person who I, I never would have put midterm rentals in that sixplex, which is killing it unless I was around people who had been doing that niche and, and saw how approachable it was. So if you are just involved in one type of, of networking, I invite you to branch out. Super awesome. Um, all right, Mandy. Well, obviously, this has been a really productive conversation. And every time we talk, I get this new sense of energy and I just want to go out and see who else I can impact in the world. So that's always a positive, positive plus of connecting. So, you know, know that. And I do have one more question for you. Well, two more questions, but I'll start with the one that I like the most. Um, and this is one that we ask everybody. So hopefully I'm not catching you too off guard here, but we have a question and it falls under our streamline spotlight. And so our Streamline Spotlight, the question is, what technology have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that has made you more effective? Feel free to answer that in any way. I'm curious. So in the car wash there, the, the, the biggest 
surprising difficulty in the car wash was merchant services, the ability to collect credit cards. There is a group that specializes specifically in laundromats and car washes called CryptoPay has nothing to do with Bitcoin that will allow us to do this membership sign up at some point in time. So the technology that I've leaned on most recently is this CryptoPay collection for our automatic days that we're, we're very excited to, to turn into membership soon. Awesome. So how does that exactly work then? It's just like what I'm imagining where somebody can sign up for rather than every car wash I pay, I can sign up for an allotted number of car washes per month. And I have almost like my Netflix subscription. Yes, exactly that. So you would basically have unlimited car washes for the month and you get an app on your phone. And yes, I'm probably going to have somebody give that app to their mom and their brother and their sister. But I think that that's going to be few and far between. And in looking at the existing data of other washes that employ this, it, it does seem to be pretty few and far between. And I don't know about you. I'm still paying for like Paramount and like Apple TV. And I don't I cannot remember the last time I actually watched a show on there. And I suspect that people will have a similar thing when it comes to a car wash membership. I know I saw Brandon's face light up. He's He, he heard this <laughs> car wash subscription. I'm on it. <laughs> Get that monthly recurring revenue. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, Mandy, it's been super awesome. My last question for you is, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Where can they find you? Yeah, best place is on my website, mandymcallister.com. That will also link you to goabundancewomen.com. Fantastic, Mandy. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for coming on the show. We're excited for next time. Thanks, Mandy. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.